batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Ready to move off. Always try to like to say something. There's no reason why you shouldn't have complete confidence in your chances to come out of this thing alive in one piece. From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other, and all points in between. The Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 70s and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it! And now your hosts, Jeremy and Jeff. One half teaspoon for fast, effective relief. It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. We are clear up to episode 18, Jeff. Can you believe it? We started the end of November. I think November 30th was our first episode. Yeah, I think so. And we're up to episode 18. Uh, Last week, we missed Jeff. We had our interview with Neil from Def Lap Pod. And that was a great episode. So go, go out and listen to that. I'm really excited about today's episode. We're going to be covering an album that came out on this day yesterday. We originally were going to record yesterday. I wasn't able to record yesterday, so we're a day off. But on this day, April 8th, way back in 1975, this classic album from Aerosmith came out. It's Toys in the Attic. I know Jeff is a big Aerosmith fan. I'm an Aerosmith fan, too, and we'll talk about this when we get into it. This, this is a great album and a great recommendation on Jeff's part. So, Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, I missed you last week. Yeah, we missed you. Uh, I was in Utah. Skiing or snowboarding. 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 Uh, I, I was hoping for some powder, but no fresh snow. No fresh snow. And they, but, and they say that Utah, you're a snowboarder. You've been there. Mm-hmm. I've never skied. No, I haven't been in Utah. Oh, you hadn't been there. Okay. They claim it's the best snow on earth. Yes, so, and then the, the week I go, it's, it wasn't. There's, there's like, <laughs> it was. It was more like what you might be used to back when you grew up or I grew up. Yeah, yeah. Well, icy. It was just icy, scrapey. Yeah. But what an amazing little place! I don't know if you've ever been to Snowbird. Uh, I've never been to Snowbird. I have been to Park City. I've been to Park mm-hmm. City. Yeah. Never been to Snowbird, and and I was at Park City for work, and. Uh, on one of the days we could either go skiing or go snowmobiling. And I chose the snowmobiling, mm-hmm. uh, but park city as a resort, as a, it's, it's beautiful, but I've heard snowbirds, the place, you know, the snowbirds, the place, you know, it's interesting. It's one of those, it felt a little bit European. Mm. It was just steep and they had a, they have a tram, like a full on tram. Right. You could take this tram up. <clears throat> you could take a tunnel through the mountain to get to the backside. Wow. And then you can go down part of that backside and you're in Alta, a different mountain. Alta. Yeah, I've heard of Alta. So that's kind of, and, and it's not a huge mountain, but it is steep and you're nestled in this canyon and there's not a lot there. Mm-hmm. There's a few hotels with some restaurants and that's it. There's no wow. town. There's no village. People are serious about their skiing. Yeah, well, that's cool. That and yeah. and I've heard. So hopefully next time you go, you'll get some famous Utah powder. Uh, I hope so. We'll see, I you know, and I don't want to embarrass Jeff uh, or put him on the spot. Jeff has been working on bumper music for us. We've played a few bumpers. 
we've got two new ones that we'll play today. And, and I have to say, these are really, really good. And we were just kind of talking about at some point, it would be cool if we compile these and make them available or, or whatever, or maybe make them available to our, our Patreon users. But these bumpers that Jeff has made are really good. And so I, I told Jeff, I said, you should do a full on like instrumental album. Cause they're, they're really that good. I really, I really think Thank you. they're Thank that you. good. And so we'll be hearing more of those bumpers from Jeff today. Very kind of up, you, my friend, you got to come up with names. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta name these mm. profound. I've got, I've got names. Okay, good, good. Usually I, I come up with ridiculous names. I just named them bumper one, two, three, just to kind of in my mind. I like it. And, and here's the thing is, and you even alluded to this is you've got to think, in 30 seconds, which in a way makes it easier, but probably makes it harder in some ways too. You know, you don't have to fill as much space, but you've got to say, I've got 30 seconds to make a musical statement, right? For me, it's much easier. I would, I would think it would be easy because it's just, I think as guitar players, I, I'm, I'm speaking for everyone, but I should maybe just speak for me. I, we come up with these little riffs. Uh, or pieces, or even just a, a strum with a couple chords, and then you're like, ah, I don't have a before or an after, and then you just forget it. So, or I just I just let it go because I'm thinking, ah, anybody can just do that, and then I just let it go. But if you could kind of wrap something kind of around it and just be happy with 20 seconds, right? Then it's the then it's you get you have it. It's in like your toolbox, and then who knows where it could where it could go in the future. And I was, as you were saying that, I just thought, you know, that that's the perfect venue for someone with a short attention span like me, you know, yeah. 30 seconds. I just got to do something for 30 seconds. <laughs> that's perfect. So if, if you write something, do you need, uh, I know some people do and some, some don't, but do you need rhythm? Do you, would you, do drums help you? They help definitely, me for sure. Definitely. So oftentimes if there's nothing, if I don't have any ideas, just playing a drum track or something kind of can can spur that sometimes it's just a sound okay it's just the sound of of a guitar not necessarily what you're playing but just the way it sounds might inspire you to come up with something or whatever but they're yeah. really good so Thank you. you had a couple things you wanted to share a couple of news clips awesome i thought i i always i always like to see who's selling what <laughs> as far as musicians go like clapton had that million dollar was it a million dollars for his one of his strats or oh something? i saw that yeah we have uh metallica's kirk hammett thirty eight thousand dollars strat on an auction uh heritage auctions i believe it's a london thing mm-hmm. the same one he used in the video one okay i remember which, the video. yeah which was metallica's first video is this Strat single coils? It, no, it's a, it's an ESP. Sorry. Oh, so it's okay. So it's okay. That it's makes an ESP. Okay, of course. I see that body style, and I think uh, Strat. Yeah, and and of course, Kirk Hammett, famous for owning the famous Peter Green Les Paul. That's uh, right. And 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 that Les Paul is a fascinating thing, fascinating history, because before Kirk owned it, Gary Moore owned it, and when Gary Moore got it, <laughs> this is just so funny. Uh, it was just different in the 60s, right? It, the guitar playing, early 60s, early 70s. Gary Moore got this guitar from Peter Green. And think of Peter Green. Peter Green's one of the blues greats. I mean, he's awesome. 
And Gary Moore talks about getting this Les Paul and the strings were like years old. He said they were just cruddy and, and Gary's like, dude, ever change the strings? And he's like, well, you think I should, you know? And it was like, now he sounds amazing. Yeah. Now players like change their strings every show, you know, it's it's ridiculous. So this is very serendipitous Mm. for two things, because my next little news comment is um, about Peter Green. Oh, wow. Awesome. How funny. Bunch of amazing musicians got together right before COVID in the Palladium in London. Mm-hmm. And they uh, performed a tribute to Peter Green. And, you know, from Billy Gibbons, Peter P. Townsend, Stephen Tyler. Yeah. Uh, and awesome. David Gilmore. They just released uh, a video. They're going to release the, I think they're the like DVD kind of box set kind of thing. But they just released a streaming little video with David Gilmore um, on pedal. Oh. I'm not sorry, sorry, Lap Steel. Doing oh. Albatross. Oh, cool. You know that tune? I'm sure you know I, that song. I do know that tune. So go out there, you guys, if you're a fan of Peter Green and that song. And and that's, uh, it's, just, it's just a beautiful song. And There's a clip I saw of Billy Gibbons. Okay, this is, speaking of serendipitous, this will bring in lots of things. Maybe you've seen this. There's a clip of Billy Gibbons singing Green Man Alishi, right? Well, most yeah. of us think of Green Man Alishi as a Judas Priest song. Well, it was originally a Fleetwood Mac song. That's right. And it is just so surreal to see Billy Gibbons singing Green Man Alishi more in the Peter Green style than the Judas Priest style, but it's rocks, man. And it's from that same show. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty I don't know why else Billy Gibbons would be singing. I'm sure. Yeah. Cause they've been teasing it for, for some months now. Right. And the other serendipitous thing is one of my comments about Aerosmith we'll talk about. It's one of the songs <clears throat> that turned him on to sort of this rock, funky, sort of greasy, sexy mm-hmm. to music was Rattlesnake uh, Shake, was it? Rattlesnake Shake. Okay. And in this tribute, Steven Tyler is there and he sings this song. So I thought, wow, what a, what a trip. We're doing all of it. It's all tied together, man. All these were tied together. And we and we honestly did not even talk about this before we just brought it up. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, the last thing is Roger Waters is uh, he finally he, he had a 2020 tour plan that obviously was canceled. And now he just announced this is not a drill U.S. tour <laughs> 2022. 2022. His, okay. All right. Yeah. And his uh, his quote is. It's a rock and roll show that's about the fact that this is our lives ending. We're standing in the precipice and it needs the slightest little nudge and we'll be yesterday's news. <laughs> this is wow. not a drill. It's me shouting from my rooftop and hoping that you all start shouting from your rooftops and we'll all start acting as one and put an end to this madness. <laughs> I know, what a way to kick off a, a exactly. tour <laughs> i'm i'm excited to go on oh my god buddy he, he's got uh don henley itis you know roger waters is like is like don henley right it's like dude a little little ego I, I mean you're a great musician but if you would just play music i could i could dig it but anyways that's a whole nother story that's a we, we could we'll do dark side someday or something oh yeah and Roger Waters, I don't mean to slight Roger Waters. Roger Waters is a brilliant guy, smart guy, 
it's just sometimes for some of us, music is release. Music is fun. That doesn't mean it can't be poignant and have a message, but, but man, I used to always joke, you know, it took me a long time to where I consider myself a Pink Floyd fan just because it was so depressing at times. It was like, I don't want to listen to this kind of music all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I think a lot of that is Roger Waters. That's just kind of his mindset. He's kind of a very serious, I don't want to say dark, but just kind of, you know, that's just kind of how he's wired. So whatever. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jeff. And I'm really looking forward to talking about Toys in the Attic. Uh, and that's exactly what we'll do when we come back. And taking us into this break is this awesome bumper that Jeff made. Check this out. Attention, if you live in Spokane, Washington, and have teeth, this message is for you. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry knows teeth. Incisors, bicuspids, canines, molars, no tooth is too big or too small. I was delighted and impressed. So impressed, I bought the company. With Braun and Jarvis, you'll have the sweetest grill in the inland northwest. And let's be honest, nobody wants a funky grill. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry, 509-464-2391. That's 509-464-2391. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry, quality dentistry that doesn't suck. Hi, this is Jeremy Lennon from the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Did you know that one of the most efficient and effective ways for businesses to reach potential customers is by advertising on podcasts? You see, unlike radio, TV, and social media, where advertising is literally background noise or clutter, podcast listeners are much more tuned in and engaged than those audiences. They've tuned in to actually listen to the podcast. And even more important, podcasts are very niche-oriented. This allows businesses to send their message to a very specific and targeted audience. For instance, the Classic Guitar Rock podcast core demographic is 40 to 60 year old males who like classic rock. Now, if that is your target market, then this podcast is an excellent way to reach them. Oh, and by the way, this podcast is one of the top 3% most popular shows out of over 2 million podcasts globally, according to listennotes.com. You would be pleasantly surprised to see how inexpensive it is to advertise on our podcast. If you are a business owner, and want to reach a growing audience around the world, you should talk to us while there's still availability. If you're interested, email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. That's classicguitarrock at mail.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast and bringing us back in another excellent bumper by uh, Jeff. And Jeff, this is just awesome. These are these are awesome. And I would totally buy a, a CD of your bumpers. <laughs> I love it. And it's perfect for someone with a short attention span like me. They're 30 to 40 seconds long. That's yeah. just awesome. They sound Thank great. you. They Thank you. Great. You're kind. Okay, so... Aerosmith, Toys in the Attic, and I just want to get this off my chest right at the beginning. I have been guilty of what we call recency syndrome, right? I have been guilty (laughs) of Mm -hmm. pinning my opinions to recent history. And when I say recent, I mean mean like 1990, you know, 90. Because in my mind, first of all, okay, Steven Tyler is an iconic front man. I mean, he's one of the best. He really is. I've always thought most that. definitely in any, in any context, even, yeah. even, the, even the cheesy, I, call, I totally. think cheesy ballady kind of pop. Yeah. And here's the thing you get torn, right? And here's what fans do. So for instance, I'll just throw out an example. A, a, a good friend of Aerosmith is cheap trick. They've toured a lot together. They're fans of each other, blah, blah, blah. So cheap trick because the body of their work, right? Their most popular song, number one song was a ballad, The Flame. Cheap Trick fans hate The Flame. Oh, I hate that song because it represents everything that rock fans hate. It represents commercialism, selling out, wimping out. They used an outside writer, you know, all of this stuff. And all of this happened with Aerosmith. We're going to talk about that too. But the reality is, had there never been a flame, Cheap Trick probably would have been done in the mid-80s, right? Had there never been Permanent Vacation and Angel and Ragdoll and Dude Looks Like a Lady, three songs that I hate. Now, I hate's a strong word. I actually like Angel. Angel's a great ballad. But Dude Looks Like a Lady and Ragdoll – that's what I think of when I hear Aerosmith and I'm like, I'm just not, I was working in radio when pump came out, mm-hmm. loving an elevator. Mm, it was okay. It was, and that was a massive album, by the way, pump and get a grip, which came out the next album, phenomenal albums made them tons, tons of money, which you got to appreciate. That's what keeps them in business. Right. But I, I just, I never was a big fan of, ragdoll and dude looks like a lady but and i said this at the very beginning and i own this record i just haven't listened to it probably since 1980 yeah that's an exaggeration because i didn't even own it till about 1985 i had forgotten how good this album is it's a really good album and i'll just i'm going to turn it over to you but i want to share this is my this is my formative years this was my first exposure to Toys in the Attic. I moved between my seventh grade and eighth grade from, from Oklahoma to Montana. And I went, to a, I went from a big school to a school that the eighth grade class was five kids. There was wow. me, me and, a, and a guy named Lyle and then three girls. That was the eighth grade. And we were in a classroom combined with sixth and seventh graders. So fortunately, day one, me and this Lyle kid hit it off and we became 
really good friends. And the end of that first week of school, I spent the night at his house and we listened to toys in the attic. That was my first exposure to toys in the attic. And that just kind of became a record that we listened to a lot. And I can remember riding around, he had a motorcycle and we'd, I'd hop on the back of his motorcycle and we'd ride all over the mountains in Montana singing, you know, walk this way and Adam's apple. And I mean, that's just, that's what we did. Right. So I have a lot of really fond memories of this album tied to the nostalgia piece. Right. But when I, when I try to separate myself from that and just listen to it, which I've been doing over the last week, this is a really, really solid album. Yes. It's a classic. So I, I have the same nostalgic <clears throat> thing going on. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about it a little bit <clears throat> in the past, mm-hmm. but ACDC on a cassette, little recorder, right. six, sixth grade. <laughs> and that was the start of my rock and roll journey. Mm-hmm. I remember going to a store and I don't remember if anybody told me to buy this album, but I saw it on the rack mm. and I just purchased it mm-hmm. on cassette. Yeah. And it was, became one of my three or four introductions to rock and roll. And I would play this thing like crazy, not really understanding what was, what, what I was listening to. Mm-hmm. So when I listen to it now, it, boo, it just shoots me back. And to comment on your eighties thing. I mean, a lot of bands, oh. I think the, the, so much, I think you forget nowadays because of of the internet really and how the the gig economy and the do it yourself thing and music industry's changed so much with streaming. Right. But you know, you needed record companies and A&R people and you needed their influence and their funds. (laughs) So, and then the style just happened to get cheesy in the eighties. Right. When Aerosmith was given another chance or they got clean and right. Decided to kind of do it again. Happened to be, cheesy if it were like 70s style who knows right style not only style culturally but the music was also changing exactly right hair bands and metal bands so i think they they, i think it was really hard to not get pulled into that i mentioned cheap trick i mentioned aerosmith but to your point you're spot on you could go to look at every band that's been around every band i'm trying to think of an exception but at some point the reason they got big is they expanded their tent, right? And how do you do that? You do something mainstream that draws in the masses. And so we fault, we taught, there's a, a major theme in our discussion about Def Leppard last week. Same thing, same point is for some reason, we as fans are, uh, you, well, they're my band. They were really cool when they were my band, but now that they're everybody's band, they're not cool. They sold out, right? Um, and I just think that's, that's yeah. natural. I, I was thinking of yes, Hmm. In the post on owner of a lonely heart. Okay. So, so people that people that were introduced to yes, by that song, owner of a lonely heart, love that song. Right. But the diehard yes fans hate owner of a lonely heart. And yet it is just a simple fact that if owner of a lonely heart hadn't happened, yes, would have not existed after 1980. They would have been done. They were done. I've and said it before, so, and I'll say it again. I think MTV had a lot to do with it. Big this. time. Oh, because yeah. Because all of a sudden you're seeing. Right. And maybe Friday Night Videos. Yeah, You're, you're sure. seeing the style, and you're seeing the band for the first time in a totally different way. Yeah. That's never. And, but and, Aerosmith has always remained super cool. 
they can do these things. They could play the Super Bowl with Britney Spears, and somehow yeah. they can still be <laughs> still cool. kind of yeah. scratchy, scruffy rock and roll guys. And for some reason, Jeff, I remember the Eagles episode a few episodes back where I made the case. I wasn't saying I necessarily agreed with this, but I said the case could be made that the Eagles are the biggest American band. I wasn't even thinking of Aerosmith because to be honest, it's not even close. I mean, air, I don't, I shouldn't say that. I haven't looked at total album sales, but the body of work, how many albums has Aerosmith put out? I mean, they've put out a lot of albums, twice as many as the Eagles for sure. And they've kind of been like Tom Petty is a perfect example. Tom Petty until he died, obviously Tom Petty from the mid seventies through the nineties into the two thousands. He was never the biggest band in the world, but he was relevant that whole time. I mean, you cannot find a two to three year period where he didn't have music that was getting played on the radio, on rock radio, even top 40 radio. So he had a very long, successful career. Aerosmith, they had a break, right? They had a about a four-year break where they were in the toilet. The stuff they were putting, they were still putting stuff out, but it just wasn't very successful. But you think about it. From the early 70s through, through the 2000s, man, I can't think of a a band that has had a longer run, you know, they're up there with like the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones got to a point where they were kind of just, they've been going through the motions for the last 20 years. Right. But Aerosmith again has stayed relevant. They're they had a little bit of the break when Joe, Joe, Joe left. Well, I guess you're right. They did put out a couple albums. Yeah. They put out albums without um, Joe and then Brad left for one album too. Yeah. Yeah. So there was I, that, from 79 to 84. So like almost a five-year period that Joe was gone. And then like three of that, three of those years, Brad was gone. Toys in the Attic sold a lot of albums. Yes, it did. Eight million or something, which is what back then it was huge. Giant. Huge. It's no back in black, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's really good. Do we want to get into the history a little bit? Let's talk about the history just a little bit. Yeah, I, I I didn't know that uh, Steven Tyler's dad, you know, playing classical, classical piano had such an influence on him, and it you could it shows. Yeah, but he sort of took that and combined it with this greasy, this, this greasy, R&B funky, rock. groovy riff rock. And Joe Perry, I mean, God, he's just one of the masters of of the riff. Oh, Jim. maybe me, Brad Whitford too. I don't know. Oh, who yeah, he, and and that's that uh, was what I was going to ask you is. I'm assuming that Perry's on the right side and Whitford's on the left when you listen. I'm not sure though. I think Perry probably plays most of the leads, but again, I don't know that either. I'm this is one band I've never seen live. I've never seen Aerosmith live other than clips on YouTube or whatever, but I've never seen I have not either. But the history piece is kind of interesting. I said this earlier. Is it Lake Sunapee? Lake Sunapee, which is Sunapee, New Hampshire, yeah. New Hampshire. And Jeff is from the East Coast. You're from Connecticut, right? Mm-hmm. So where you grew up. Here's the thing. For those of us in the West, I spent on two different occasions ex- extended time in New Hampshire for work. And what shocked me is you could hop in your car and drive for 90 minutes and might be in four different states. <laughs> that doesn't happen in the West, right? So you can drive all day and not make it across Montana, right? <laughs> 
So that kind of blew me away. The fact that, you know, you talk about New Hampshire and Connecticut and, and Boston, they're all kind of close together. You know, I, I don't, I'm not super familiar with that geography. So, cause, oh, yeah. cause Aerosmith is always, you know, the Boston bad boys, they're affiliated mm-hmm. with Boston. And yet the story kind of started in New Hampshire at this Lake Sunapee. Yep. And there was a place called the barn where bands would play. And apparently to Tom, Tom Hamilton, the bass player and Joe played together in a band. What, what were they called, Jeff? I don't remember the, the jam band. The jam band. The jam band. <laughs> so they were in the jam band. Who knew they, they coined a, yeah, a genre. Jam band. And even <laughs> Tyler had had a number of bands that he'd been in. And some of them had even had, I think one had even had a record or something. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. I think he had a couple, had a couple records and he was Um, already doing his thing. He was doing his thing. And Joe and Tom kind of, I don't know if idolize is the word, but they really liked Steven Tyler's band. And every time there was a chance to go see him play at the barn, which was literally a big barn, by Lake Sunapee where bands would play and kids would dance. This is mid sixties, right? I'm kind of jealous. I want a barn. Yeah, that would be sweet. And (laughs) that's exactly what I'd do. If I had a barn, I'd make it into a place to play and have dances. One of my dreams. Mark my word today. It'll happen somewhere in Colorado. You come see us. They'd go into the barn to see Steven Tyler play. And I guess they'd kind of gotten to know each other, but there's a funny story. Steven Tyler had quit one of his bands he was kind of in between bands and Joe Perry pulls up in his little, I think it was a little MG pulls up in his little MG and sees, and they'd kind of gotten to know each other a little bit. And uh, he's, he invites Stephen Perry to come watch he and Tom's band, the jam band play at the barn that night. And Stephen or Stephen Tyler said, I didn't have anything else to do. So I went up and watched him. And he says, he says, they were terrible. He says, yes. they were terrible. But they went into one song, and I can't remember the song. The Rattlesnake Shake. The ra- that's what it was, the Rattlesnake Shake. And he said, that's it. That's the song, man. He said they were playing like really fast, and they were out of tune. And But this song was kind of slowed down, and it had that like it had the pop. dynamics, and it had that yeah. pocket of that, that groove. Yeah, and uh, his. By the way, one of his na- one of his bands was Chain Reaction. He was Chain eighteen years eighteen years old in nineteen sixty six. Yeah, Steven Tyler. That was kind of the beginning. Interestingly enough, and you really see it. I want to I want to be careful the way I say this because I don't want to sound like a jerk. Steven Tyler, he has an interesting look, right? Mm-hmm. And as a kid, they made fun of him. And you really notice it when you see the little black and white pictures of him as a kid. He was born in 1948. So he's what? 70. I'm trying to do the math in my head. Seven. So in 75, 74, he's getting up there. Right. But when you see these black and white pictures from the, from the fifties, when he was a little kid, he, he, I mean, he's got that skinny little nose and big mouth and he got a lot of grief. And they made fun of him. And he he turned to music as a way to be accepted, right? Maybe they won't, because he wanted to play in the cafeteria. He wanted to play music in the cafeteria with the cool kids. And, uh, you know, those kids probably don't make fun of him now, but, <laughs> but back then, you know. Well, I just love, his, one of his things he said was, um, 
you fake it till you make it. Yeah. So he, you know, he just was faking being a rock star. Yeah. And he, and he manifested it. And of course, he has an amazing, really an amazing oh. voice and a persona. And he could play the piano. Yeah. So, and, you and know. He plays guitar, too. You don't think of him yeah. as a guitar player. But but he can play. He's a, just a very. He started out as a drummer. Well. Right. Which we can talk about. As a kid. But but yeah, he was a drummer. He played Walk This. He originally. He came up with the beat. Came up with the beat. Yeah. That's which fun. who knew with foreshadow. Exactly. But he is. um very interesting and no one sounds like steven tyler no one you can't think of of any singer he has got such a distinct voice and watching the interviews uh, i i just like him i like steven tyler i i like him joe perry comes across as super level-headed right i mean he is to this day well, I guess they're not touring currently, but but for the last 40 years, right, 30 years, when he tours, he brings his whole family with him. Yeah, now he does. He's like the, yeah, I mean, then in the early days, walk this way, you know, Toys in the Attic era, that wasn't the case. But but really since like the 80s, since since permanent vacation on, his when he tours, it's the whole yeah. family. But but yeah. even in the early days, one of the bones of contention was the girlfriends. The girlfriends. Okay, so Steve or or Joe Perry was very much about hanging out with his girlfriend. And in the early days, the band all shared an apartment in Boston. Can you imagine what that would have been like? They all shared this apartment in Boston, but there was beginning to be this tension between Stephen and Joe because the rest of the band, they were like a band of brothers, you know, mm-hmm. they hung out all the time and did everything together, good and bad. Right. And here, Joe Perry is, he just wanted to hang out with his girlfriend. He was kind of the anti rock star in a lot of ways. That's kind of the way I see it. And there was tension. And of course, huge tensions between the different girlfriends in the band. And that was a common theme is they'd tour and all of them would have girlfriends around and, and there would be some girlfriends that they could not be in the same room together. There was a situation where the, the one threw spilt the, milk, spilt milk on one of them. <laughs> you talk about crying over spilled milk. I mean, that's oh exactly what it was. The irony is thick. Oh, it's it's just crazy. It was just a fascinating to see. Now, here's the other thing. B.B. Buell was the model that Steven Tyler, they were never married. They weren't even together that long. No. But he, years later, well, not years later, a few months later after they broke up, he finds out that that B.B. is having a baby. And she has this baby, and this baby is who we know now as Liv Tyler, right? I did not know this until I watched this documentary that Liv's dad, okay, not her biological dad, but her dad, mm-hmm. BB's husband, was Todd Rundgren. Yeah. So Liv Tyler was basically, Todd Rundgren was her, her dad. For like nine or 10 years. For like nine or, or 10 years. I don't think she met Steven Tyler until she was a teenager. Or, or, I feel like, or yeah, maybe, a, yeah, 11, 12, 13. Yeah. Something but, like that. But Steven Tyler talks about when he when he first saw Liv, 
he wasn't Obviously, she's mine. <laughs> that's what he said. He said, we didn't need a DNA. I mean, I knew that she was my daughter, you know, when he saw her just fascinating. And now they've got a good relationship and, and all of this, but the thing about Aerosmith, and this has been a recurring theme, they came so close to losing it all. I mean, Steven Tyler's drug addiction was so bad that people were afraid he was going to die. Yeah. And there were a couple of times where he would pass out on stage and couldn't get back up and they'd have to end the shows. I don't think it was as bad during the Toys in the Attic, but it was kind of after that. Toys in the Attic was the one that really broke them big. Yes. And so I'm sure with that came more drugs, more of that. And, and Jack, well, the heroin, the heroin came. The, the heroin. Not, not it, that cocaine is, is better, but. but. But it's not the same as heroin. Absolutely. Heroin <laughs> was a completely different beast. And Jack Douglas, the producer, even, even talks about how back in the 70s, the record companies would would provide budget for Coke. Okay. That was just part of the recording process. Make sure these guys have enough Coke that they can crank this album out, right? On budget, on time. That's exactly. Uh, I think you could argue they did hit rock bottom. They really did. They were playing arenas. They were headlining AC for ACDC and Van Halen. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then when they hit bottom, they were in a club in Boston, I believe that there was like it fit two or 300 people or something. And yeah. they, they played this club and it was like half full. That's yeah. So you could argue that it was pretty much done. They and I think hit. they were broke. They I think were. they were all pretty much broke. So, you know, I think uh, one of Stephen, Stephen Tyler's current wife mm-hmm. helped him get sober. Yeah. And it took about four years for all the members to finally be done and be sober. And then, and, they, and it, they had and this if, sort of second life, if I read which, is rare, which is rare. If I read it right, by the way, Rock in a Hard Place, I always loved Lightning Strikes, the song Lightning Strikes. I remember that video on MTV, and I remember thinking, man, Steven Tyler, he looks really weird. But I dug, <laughs> I dug that song. I love that song. But that, that song was, or that album rock in a hard place. And then the following done with mirrors were, were basically, I don't want to say they were failures because they both lightning strikes was marginal. I mean, it got like into the thirties on the, on the 200 rock chart, but those two albums were disappointments. They, they were at the height of their drug fueled addictions. Uh, Joe Perry had left Brad Whitford had left. Yeah. And I think if I'm correct, Perry was the first one to, to get cleaned up. I think he's the first one that he left first, right? He, yeah, he's no, no, no. I'm sorry. I meant to say Steven Tyler. I was thinking Steven. Oh, maybe I I know, but Joe Perry left, right? Joe Perry left in 79 Joe Perry project, which is pretty dang good. Actually the first Joe Perry, let the music do the talking. It's pretty good. You know, I like it. I like that riffy. Uh, It was good. Where was I going with this? Oh, my point was they brought on that new manager, the guy who was the doctor. Can't remember his name. Yeah. I was just reading it. Who wound up being kind of a a butthead. But at the beginning, he saved their life, you know, and he told them, he said, guys, you can be the biggest band in the world if you will clean up. 
And this was 84, 80, this is around 85. One thing happened first, right? Before this happened. And that was run DMC. I was working in before radio. Before this happened? This was, be- this was before they got cleaned up. They didn't get cleaned up until after. Well, mm. Tyler had, Tyler had, but the rest of the band was not, they were not completely clean until. Oh, because they kind of went back. They, exactly. they did a little, that's right. It wasn't until, and I think permanent vacation was 88, right? Yeah, I think so. 87 or 88. Give or take. But it was between Run DMC, which was 86, and I remember working at a radio station in Oklahoma when that song came out. And it was like, for those of us that were familiar with Toys in the Attic, it was on the one hand, it was pretty cool that it was Aerosmith, but then on the other hand, it was rap. And you're like, oh, but it it wound up being like a number two hit. I, I mean, mean it, it, it brought them back it into them the back. huge, huge it, way. It, you could make the case that that was the hinge moment that was where it turned around brought them back from the dead brought them back from the dead and then they were all cleaned up by the time permanent vacation came out and then permanent vacation was just exploded you had angel you had dude looks like a lady you had ragdoll all the stuff i said i didn't like but but from a historical nature they have been huge since then They've been huge since. Yeah, with with a lot of ballads. <laughs> a, lo- a lot of ballads, <laughs> which seems to sell well. Timeless, really, yeah. and almost in any 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 era. When did when did Jaded come out? I I mean, you know, honestly, I'm one of those people that I love Aerosmith so much because of their past and because of what they've done. Exactly. I don't I must I don't follow them really much. Their new stuff. I couldn't tell you what albums came out when, and even what the I'm biggest hits are. But just a few a few interesting things. Jaded, I'm just trying to find when Jaded came out. Because I thought Jaded was awesome. But while you're, while you're looking, before I forget, because we should probably get into the album soon. Yeah, yeah, okay. we better. Yeah. <laughs> we could have like, we could have supplemental uh, podcasts. Exactly. Steven Tyler wrote Dream On for the first, and it was on the first album. What, but, that's but just he um, wrote, unbelievable, amazing. He, he wrote the song when he was like 16. It's unbelievable. So years before. I mean, yeah. the guy was born to do what he's what he's doing and what he's done. Yeah. It's, which is why we're sitting here talking about him. It's it's crazy. It, yeah. Was, oh, Jaded came out. It's older than I thought. Came out in 2000. It's on mm-hmm. Just Push Play, which was a very popular album. But great song you know and 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 there were other songs too jamie's got a gun was a great song they won a grammy for that song but a, again a different vibe than the stuff you and i like you know from toys in the attic and all of that so anyways let's talk about the album i'll let you go first and i'll try not to interrupt you but you know how bad i am at that so what are the high points of toys in the attic who <sighs> Joe Perry and Brad just, I can't tell you how much I love the riffs. Yeah. They're just the, the sound, you know, it's gotta be Marshall kind of less Pauly what I'm thinking, but just, mm-hmm. he just writes catchy riffs. Yeah. And then, and then not only does Steven Tyler have a great voice melodically, he's writing some great stuff, but he can do that. He could do that. Like, I don't want to say um, rappy thing, but he sings. He's very like 
scatty and really rhythmic with his vocals, with his yeah. lines. Combined with a hard martial rock kind of guitar, you get this really unique kind of thing. Absolutely. Pretty groovy. And every tune, I mean, I, I got Toys in the Attic is just, I love the song so much. Mm-hmm. I love how the guitars are panned. And I'm pretty sure it's Perry doing that riff on one. But I have them almost in order of what they are in the album. Really? Uh, I love Uncle Salty. I love Uncle Salty. I love Uncle Salty. Yeah. It's got that chill vibe. Uh, is it about a crazy, sketchy uncle? I, I don't know. Could I'm not be. sure. But I love, <laughs> I, I, one of the notes I have is the totally 70s chorus, you know, about the sun. Love yeah. The sun. And I mean, it's just outside my you know, window. Yeah. I love that. I love that. kind of a call and response kind of thing. Exactly. And, and when I think of, remember I told you how I was exposed to this album, my friend Lyle, they lived on, they had 80 acres, you know, so basically mm-hmm. a big kind of like a farm. There was a big apple tree right outside, you know, his room was up on the second floor. The window would be open. And that just brings back the memories of being at his house. The sun, it's just a great, and I love that song. It's a great yeah. song. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Adam's apple is just kind of amazing. Yeah. As far as like, who would write a song like that? Exactly. With those, with those, with those lyrics. Very, very, uh, he's a, he's a very clever lyricist. He really is. Yeah. Yes. Even walk this way when you think about. Yeah. Again, how he, how he also is singing the words. One of the, now that you bring that up, I think it was no more, no more. Uh huh. If you go Google the lyrics and then listen to the song, how he sings those words and the rhythm, rhythm that he does right. and how he, cause it's really, I don't know if you've tried to sing a uh, certain kind of lyrics and lines are really challenging right. to, to, to do the inflection and all that. And he just has it down just like, like nobody, no, nobody else. Yeah. yeah. And that's one of the songs that I just really also love. I love the acoustic mellow kind of beginning and no more, no more track number seven. I love, I mean, who, who doesn't love this sweet emotion talk box? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, interesting about that song is Brad Whit, uh, sorry, Tom Hamilton came up with that bass lick. Yeah. And if you go yeah. listen to awesome. Jeff Beck's Beck, Beckola album, uh-huh. Rice Pudding, the last song on that. I never thought about that. There is a line in there. There's a little piece in there that's da na 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 it's got almost the same yeah, kind of thing. That's I thought, awesome. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Where else? What do you like? Round? You like round and round? That's one of my, I like round and round too. I like it because it's different. Yeah. It's a little dark and a little yeah. weird. Yeah. It's, 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 it, it always it, tapped it, into it, some sadness in me. I don't know why yeah. or some uncomfortableness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love the walk this way kind of story where like Joe Perry was playing this riff. Stephen Todd jumped on the drum, but there was no lyric. Tell us. And they were in Times Square, right? They recorded this album in Times Square. Yeah. 1975. And this was like the last song, right? This was the, this was, wasn't this going to be the last song they needed a lot. Yeah. I think they were pretty much done. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have lyrics. Uh, so they just took a break and they went in, in, in uh, Times Square. They went and saw young Frankenstein <laughs> <laughs> and the hunchback. Right. Uh, Marty Feldman. Marty Feldman. Yeah. There was a, a part of that movie where he's kind of like, Eagle okay, yeah. walk, walk this way. Yeah, yeah. And Steven Tyler was like, that's it. 
Yeah. And he wrote the lyrics in like two or three hours. Then left him in a cab on the way back to the studio the next morning. And people, you know, the guys didn't believe him. And that's that's kind of like how that worked. Awesome. I just thought that was so funny. And and a little interesting backstory is, so Run, oh, the guys in Run story. DMC, you know, rappers, this, and then you think about it, uh, that's why they made it a rap song, is it's really a rap song. You know, the verses are, it's like rap. Uh, and so they used to always, as they, that's why they did the song, is that was a song when they were, when that whole, you know, scratching and all of that was coming out, that was, they do a lot of Aerosmith. They, they liked those, there were certain rock songs that, that worked well for them to scratch with and, and for them to rap to. And that was one of them. That's why they yeah. wanted to do the song. And that right. kind of speaks to that whole rhythmic ability that Steven Tyler is able to do, you know, as a vocalist. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. One of the things about Walk This Way, I, I read, I don't know if you read the same, but they were opening for the Guess Who in, in Honolulu. No, I didn't read this. And that's where Joe Perry was fooling around with that riff. Wow. And he was kind of also referencing the meters. Uh, Sissy Strut, which we play in our, our band. Awesome. So that's why I, I remembered that kind of piece. Because that Sissy Strut's got a, got a riff that's kind of groovy and catchy. That's what he kind of had on his mind. So but, I thought that was kind of cool. You know, the mid-70s, because you said you talked about that interplay between we kind of talked about it like in life in the fast lane, the same type of deal where you're hearing, you're hearing two distinct guitar players playing similar, but different things. I mean, they're, they're, they're just a little, so you got, and, and when I think about the seventies, you know, you could point to, you know, Felder and Walsh, Joe Perry, Brad Whitford, Pat Travers, Pat Thrall, you know, a lot of these great riff heavy seventies guys that we miss that right we we don't hear that where you just have these riffing going on as these guys would do their own thing complement each other that's what i like i hear it in uh toys in the attic mm-hmm. you know if you listen and and just who would come up with these little riffs underneath the vocal my my favorite song actually is toys in the attic I just, that song for some reason is just, it's a weird song. The way the vocal comes in. It's almost like they, they have a little, when they a reverse on the vocal. Exactly. There's some kind of an effect when it, when it comes and, back and to it, the verse. And it comes in in a weird part of this. Like I would really not. I like. Exactly. And I would, and, and, and then you've got the riffs underneath. You hear it on one side, you hear it on the other, the kind of hype you know there's the there's the it's just it i don't even know how to explain it the whole chorus you know toys 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 it's a driving song it's a driving it's, song it's hard to play i've oh, tried to play that riff I, yeah it's fast i, I can't it's not blazing fast but it's but it's fast and even the riff of you know i think a lot of us learn the walk this way riff definitely unique but then when you go up to c for the verse that's the hard part for me yeah yeah, is I've never learned to play that right. Even the know? verses are really that that ticka 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 exactly. There's a lot. It's not. It's just there's a lot going on between the two guitar players. So I've I've read that Joe Perry was more of the kind of like 
raw, more almost sloppy, sloppier. Yeah. And Brad Whitford was very polished and very yeah. clean. So, so yeah. together. And, and that's think, what I've heard too, but I still don't know to this day who's playing what, you know, unless, and that's why I need to go watch more footage and see, but I, I yeah. But and Joe yeah. Perry's solos, I don't want to forget to mention. They're, they're also kind of like, just not your just basic straight ahead on the beat kind of things. Right. He's right. just kind of like, I don't know. I've never been on heroin, but it feels like <laughs> if you were just kind of like, and he's playing just like Mama King, not on this album. Yeah. The first album, but that solo is so weird. It's almost, it's when almost I hear, like, is that a key or it's, something? It's almost, and I don't know the, the, if this is the best word, but I think they, they almost sound backwards, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. the way he comes in, Mm-hmm. it's not cliched and that's what makes it cool because it's easy to get cliched when you're playing, you know, pentatonic blues based solos, but yeah. his are very fluid, but almost backwardy to me, if that makes sense. But I know exactly what you're talking about. I just don't know what words to yeah. put on it. Uncle Salty. I love uncle salt top. The only, the only throwaway song is big 10 inch record. Right. And that's a remake of an old blues song. You know, it's one of those naughty blues songs from the fifties, you know, very innuendo. Uh, And of course, you know, when you're a 14 year old boy, you just think it's hilarious. Right. If I took that song out, I would say, it's all killer, no filler, right? I think big 10 inch record strikes me as kind of the filler tune. It's like, it's like big bad bill is sweet William now on diver down. Right. It's like, we got to fill this up. Let's do this old blues song. Not, not to say, you know, some people that might be their favorite song, but to me, that's the only filler on the album. Every, every other song on this album. I love, I did not remember how much I, I liked this album. Adam's Apple is great. Walk This Way is a great song too. That's just the one that everyone knows. So if if I was ranking them, I think I would say Toys is my favorite. Probably Uncle Salty is my favorite. You even said it's almost in the order of in the play order, right? Uncle Salty's probably my and Adam's Apple's probably my third. From there I'd probably go with Sweet Emotion. Again, that's a huge song too. Everyone knows that one. Huge but you can't really pick a bad track on it. I would put round and round, you know, at the bottom for me, but that's just because, like I said, I feel like it's a weird, it's just a little bit. It's dark. kind it's of a little... odd. I would maybe put that or, but you see me crying is a great song too. That's a ballady song. But again, the bottom songs, you know, if you're giving everything else a 10, the bottom songs might be a 8.9. So you know, big 10 inch is the, is kind of the filler. So I don't even, to me, I, I kind of throw that out because it's just so different. It's a novelty song, right? You know, some bands would do novelty songs and this is kind of a novelty song and it's kind of. I thought of you when I heard the harmonica. Oh, I know you're such a fan. I, I will say this. <laughs> Adam's apple has horns on it. Yes. And one of the things that bugged me about Bruce Fairburn producing Permanent Vacation and Pump and maybe I don't he might have done Get a Grip I can't remember. There's horns all over those and and you know how I feel about horns, especially like <laughs> Dude looks like a lady in Ragdoll. Those are horn songs. That's why I hate them so bad. 
take me to the other side. I always love that song and it's chock full of horns. I mean, I think there's like a clarinet solo or something in it, but I love that song. So it's just, I'm not consistent. I love to hate horns. You know, I love to hate horn. And, and, and on a lot of this, Adam's apple would be just fine without horns in it. Um, there's a cool double harmony guitar solo. I have down in my notes here, Adam's apple. I don't okay. know if you remember. It's um, it reminds me a little bit of um, Joe Walsh and James Gang. He he uh, overdubs like a, a harmony kind of mm-hmm. solo, mm-hmm. and it just reminds me a little bit of that. It's very cool. Yeah, I do know. There's one. Is that the song? I think it is Adam's apple. There's one on the left side. The guy plays. That's probably Brad. He's playing the same riff all. It's like repeats itself like four times. He plays the same thing all four times. It's the right side that plays, you know, like a third and then a fifth or what. And mm. it raises. And maybe that's the one you're talking about. But I noticed mm. that in one of the songs, very tight. And and what they're good at is they've got busy guitar parts, busy single note like the verse in Walk This Way. It's not just chords. They're not just chunking on chords. And those guys sync up very well together playing these single note figures. They're really tight. I don't, I don't know that they get that. We talk about Joe Perry a lot more than Brad Whitford, but maybe Brad Whitford doesn't get the credit he, he deserves, but they're, they're just very tight. Sort of like, you know, Guns N' Roses slash and uh, Izzy. Yeah. If you go back and listen to Appetite for a debut album and the guitar parts on that list, do yourself a favor and put some headphones on. I'm, it's I, un. It's just. It's I have never. Li- Here's this is funny. I do not own Appetite for Destruction. Uh-huh. I've never listened to the whole album, and I'm not saying I don't like Guns N' Roses. To be honest, I think Sweet Child of Mine is one of the greatest songs ever. I know it's kind of pop, whatever. I just think that is one of the best songs ever. I've just for whatever reason never gotten into Guns N' Roses, but I'm going to go Are back. You- we should do that album. Yeah, you should do that album. Sure, it's so, the guitar work for that style, that hard rock mm-hmm. kind of riff. It's awesome, and, and, Izzy, and Izzy, Izzy doesn't get probably enough credit. No, he Slash, doesn't. Well, because Slash wore the top hat, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Aerosmith, huge influence on Guns N' Roses, and Guns N' Roses was opening for Aerosmith. Aerosmith was out on permanent vacation. Appetite had just come out. Guns is opening for Aerosmith. Aerosmith, they'd all just gotten clean. And that was one of the challenges. Here comes Guns and Roses. Here comes Guns and Roses. It's like anti-clean, right? (laughs) The opposite of clean. So that was a challenge for Aerosmith, right? It really was. Aerosmith was a huge influence on Guns and Roses. All right. Where would you put, uh, what what do you think of No More, No More? I like I like it. I As I'm listening to it, I got to go back and listen to it. No, all I'm hearing is the chorus part. Uh, you mentioned the acoustic part and, and yeah, I remember thinking that was cool. I got to go listen to it again. I liked it. I liked it. Yeah, bring up the lyrics and listen to it while you're, while you're reading the lyrics. It's very, it's very, very cool. Have you looked at the lyrics for, I've never looked at the lyrics for toys in the attic. It's hard for me to understand what he's saying. I got to check out those lyrics because I think they're kind of, I don't think I have going to be wild, but yeah, it, it it's just a great album all the way around. And, th- and this kicked open, you know, they they had had some success before, but this one really put them on the map and they were an arena act here. And then, of course, they took that's what's interesting. Aerosmith is called 
if not the greatest, one of the greatest comebacks ever, because they were literally to your point earlier, they were down in the dumps and then came back massive in the late eighties and through the nineties, they were huge. And And they had, there was that one guitar player um, before Brad. Oh yeah. Frank, one of, one of Steven friends. Yeah. And he didn't last for more than a year, but other than that, the original lineup for, yeah. 50 years? Yeah, there's or more. The, there's the two albums, remember, that where Joe was gone. But you're right. And yeah, then they came true. back. But so there's like a four-year gap there. Yeah. You can almost leave those two albums out. Right? But, <laughs> I but think anyway. even those guitar players were like, yeah. And that's the one guy. I saw the one interview. He's like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? You guys need Joe back. Steve needed Joe because they were like, it was like, that's why the comparison to the Rolling Stones, right? I I love Aerosmith way more than the Rolling Stones. I just got to say it was it was a team, right? Their Joe Perry, Steven Tyler was a team, and they needed each other, right? That's not to say that the others aren't important, also, but without Joe there, Steven kind of lost yeah. inspiration. Yeah. The toxic know? twins, as the they toxic were twins. Yep. So, oh, and here's one one last thing I thought was interesting. Do you remember who came up with the name of the band? It wasn't Joe or uh, Steven. No, it was it was the drummer, Joey, Joey Kramer. Kramer. Yeah, this is the other Joe, right? He was, they had to read a, a what was the book they had to read? They had to read a book that, that had the character Aerosmith, A-R-R-O-W-S, uh, Upton Sinclair book, the character oh. Aerosmith. But Joey had said he'd been writing on his notebooks. Remember, remember when you'd wrap your books in like, the old grocery bag. Oh yeah. The brown bag, brown bags. Oh yes. He would write Aerosmith spelled a E R O Smith Aerosmith all over it. And he just thought it was cool. And he eventually got the guys to, to buy off on that. And, and it's so funny because they were considering other stupider names. Right. And I can't imagine them being called anything else. And you think about that iconic Aerosmith logo. Mm -hmm. It's like the, I, I don't know what it means, but it's a perfect name. Yeah, I don't either. Just associated with them. Oh, I remember drawing on those covers. Oh, it, did you draw the Van Halen logo? You learned to draw oh, the Van Halen logo. One hundred percent. I learned the the to write Aussies logo. Yeah, and I yeah. Think I could, did Def Leppard, Judas Priest. I learned how to draw all these logos. I remember Asia. Asia. Oh, I remember the Asia logo. Yeah, the coolest logo of all time. Seriously, I don't know how this guy came up with it. Angels logo. Angels? Angel. Remember Angel, the group Angel? You flip that upside down and it spells Angel. No. It's amazing. Oh yeah. It's amazing. Were they uh, they were like what hair band? Yeah, they were a hair they were like one of the first hair bands of they were more 70s, you know, late to mid 70s. Uh Greg Jafria from the band Jafria came from Oh yeah. He I remember Jafria. But if you look up the Angel logo, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, if you flip it upside down it says Angel. Wow. You see how that works? It goes both ways. Yeah, it's crazy. So that's that's brilliant whoever whoever thought of that. Anyways, Jeff, I'm super excited you chose this album. I think we both agree that this was or is an excellent album. Very important for the band. This is what put them on the map for the first time. <laughs> then then basically, you know, 12 years later, they got put on the map 
again for the second time. So that's why one of the greatest comebacks ever. So it was fun. It was fun. And you guys need to go listen to this album. I, I very quickly want to thank our sponsor, Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry here in Spokane, Washington. And I also want to encourage you all to share the podcast, listen to it, obviously, like it, subscribe, follow, <laughs> leave us a review. Anything you can do, we we surely appreciate it. I would love in the review, maybe, uh, for any, anybody to suggest an album that, that maybe we, don't, we won't know about or don't know about because I am always open. And and personally, you know, I'm a, I'm a 65 to to 1980 kind of like you know classic yeah, rock kind of like person. Yeah, 70s. I so, like the 80s stuff a little more than you do. But but I tell you what, some of these albums that you and I have gone over that that either one of us might not have chosen have been awesome. So it's it's great, and I I love the idea in a review or email us classicguitarrocketmail.com. Make suggestions for albums or topics you'd like us to cover. And we'd love to do that. So having said that, Jeff, have a great weekend. You too, uh, buddy. And and we'll see you next week. We'll see you all next time on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Keep rocking. Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast.